I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's my show and podcast where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. In Pam Zhang's new novel, A Job Application, replete with lies and one harsh truth, wins our central character a coveted position as a chef. She is spirited off to an Italian mountaintop where her talent and skill, her ethics and resilience will be tested in extraordinary ways. Miss Zhang writes in her note to readers that in the midst of the pandemic, she remembered anew what it was to anticipate abundance. Pam Zhang is the author of How Much of These Hills is Gold, and her new novel is titled Land of Milk and Honey. She joins us today from a studio in New York. Welcome. It's a pleasure. I've really looked forward to talking with you about the book. So thanks for joining me. I'm so happy to be here. Pam, um, let's go back to that job application that our chef writes in which she confesses to a difficult truth about being alone in the world. Would you remind us what she tells this potential employer about herself? Right. So this employer is part of an elite mountaintop community of the uber rich, and they are looking for a chef that sort of fits their own image. They want someone with French training. Um, They want someone who has gone to what they consider the best schools. They want someone who has worked in Michelin starred restaurants. And our chef at the beginning of the novel is none of these. And so she makes herself exactly what she thinks is the perfect candidate for them. And that includes isolation and a and a kind of sense of solitariness, right? That she has nowhere else to go. Right. She also has to sign a non-disclosure agreement and agree to be cut off from the rest of the world in order to live in this new one. So she's living in this world before she makes the application for this job that has been subsumed by, I guess, what I think of as a toxic smog. How would you describe it? Yeah, toxic smog sounds about correct. Um, it's a smog that envelops the earth and kills off the majority of food crops, um, cuts off access to sunlight, except for on this very, very tiny mountaintop. And it is both imagined and in a great deal inspired by years of living in California and on the West Coast and seeing the wildfire smog. You know, I wondered about that. I wondered how you decided what the catalyst would be for a world that, you know, is dying under a kind of desertification. So so you would live through the wildfires and it was just obvious that it would be some kind of smoky, toxic smog. Or did you give some contemplation to some other forms of um, dystopia, I guess? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, I think I picked the smog partly because I had lived through it and partly because it's both a tangible thing and felt metaphorically appropriate. Um, the protagonist starts off living in this world that just simply feels gray, right? There are no green things growing anymore. You can't see the sun. You can't see the blue of the sky. And that, that level of bleakness, that feeling of a world that is drained of color and even the most simple of pleasures that we take for granted was one that I also felt like I was living through at the time. I wrote this book, um, the beginning or middle of the pandemic at the, at the outset of 2021. And that was how things felt emotionally. You know, I was thinking about, as I thought about 
you choosing the smog and perhaps it being inspired by the wildfires, how quickly we got used to that. I mean, we're in the Midwest. Mm. We, you know, crystalline air when you're out of the cities is just something that we really take for granted. And yet, day after day of wildfire smoke, and it just became, yes, it led the news, but we got used to it surprisingly quickly. I wondered, you know, I wondered if in Beijing, China, the first few days that that the smog that envelops that city was horrific, and then people just were like, well, this is how we live now. Yes, it's it's terrifying how quickly humans adapt to having less, to this idea that we deserve less on a daily basis. So the chef arrives to this test. Um, she gets up to this mountaintop. L- let's say a little bit more about this research um, estate, I guess, is is at the top of this mountain. It is in some ways separate and apart from Italy, but it was at one point within the borders of Italy. How would you describe that? Right. Um, yeah, so it starts off as a portion of Italy, but I was really interested in this question of nationhood and ownership of land as it pertains to the uber wealthy, right? Um, having worked in tech, I saw these sort of tech scions throw their weight around and make their own rules for the world. And so the the community in this book is one step more extreme where they have come to an agreement with the government of Italy that in return for sharing certain scientific findings and resources, which the government itself cannot afford to do, this colony, this community has basically diplomatic immunity. They have created, in effect, their own micro-nation so do you I'm struck by how you described what you observed in tech that these uber wealthy founders of tech companies throw their weight around and make their own rules only because we accede to that, right? We the rest of mm-hmm. the world that is not uber wealthy in some ways, we grant them that right to do that. Isn't that true? Yeah. It is true. And I think it's it's interesting because there's this kind of duplicity that's going on where one of the reasons that I think um, tech overlords or anyone in a high position of power gets away with this is that they feed the general public this myth that uh, they'll get something back, right? Like if I'm going to operate and make these kinds of discoveries, you'll get something back. You'll get, uh, you know, you'll get a research finding, you'll get an app that makes your day to day life easier. Um, and we, the general public kind of allow ourselves to believe that, even though it's, it's often spoken out of one side of the mouth. It's funny, you use the word overlords. <laughs> somewhat <laughs> somewhat sarcastically or no fully <laughs> that's who these people well, are yeah that's a good question um i would say yeah partially sarcastically because i think that some of these people that's the way they think of themselves right do they think of themselves as a, see i have not had nearly the <laughs> the uh experience or proximity to these tech overlords that you have so tell me how they think of themselves 
So, so when I worked in tech, um, I found that there was this kind of evangelism in in that field, right? Um, of people crafting these like mytho- mythologies, these origin stories around themselves and their companies that sort of put them on a superhuman level that allowed them to think that they were beyond again the sort of normal rules of the world. Um, and I think that's a really fascinating. Kind of way of moving through the world, and one that is increasingly prominent. Mm. Yeah, I, l- I really love that word evangelism because an evangelist needs believers. He he or she right. needs people, right? Who will say, "I'm buying into that," and they they have particular uh, methods, I guess, for overcoming resistance <laughs> to the gospel, right, of whatever the evangelist is promoting. Do you see this as yeah. do you see this as significantly different than the way that the robber barons operated or the Uber wealthy in other centuries? Operated, yeah, not terrifically different. I think it is all of a piece. The sort of difference being how um, that kind of information and that gospel, so to speak, is distributed. Right? I think like a big concern or a big question in my novel in general is this question of faith. Right?、Mm-hmm. When the world feels like it's ending and it's crumbling around us, people need to have something they hold on to. They need to have some form of faith. And we live in a in an age in which there are many options. Right? It can be tech. You might evangelize science. You might evangelize actual religion,、um, which is also a thread in the novel. And you might hold to this faith of this idea of a nation,、um, which is also true of the chef protagonist in my book, who is American but has been exiled from America due to massive famine.、Um, America has closed its borders, but she sort of still holds on to this this faith. That it is a country that will let her back in,、um, a country that is capable of being generous. So glad you brought this up. I wanted to ask you about your own experience with faith traditions and what you've seen,、uh, which just what you've observed in the culture as more and more people have fallen away from a faith tradition. I think we can say that we're seeing pretty widespread secularization. But tell me a little bit about your own experience with this. Yeah, I have a, a a funny sort of through line in my life. So,、um, you know, I was born in China, immigrated to Kentucky at the age of four, and so between the ages of four and about eight or nine, while I was living in Kentucky, I actually became Christian. Um, for those years, and it, it's just kind of funny the ways that different institutions can get you. Because my parents never converted; they were never religious, but they were like, "Hey, the church offers free Bible camp, free summer camp, free childcare, right?" So that was kind of、uh, that was the way the the sort of hooks were extended. And the thing is, like, I don't.、Um, I think religion is beautiful. I still miss that feeling of standing up in a church pew, in a church pew rather, and. Knowing that everyone believes in a greater power together, that they believe that there is sort of more beyond the plane of this world, and that's a beautiful, beautiful feeling, and one that I still miss deeply.、Um, and I don't think that feeling in itself is bad or wrong, but it can be weaponized, right,、um, by institutions and by people in power. And so, after I lost Christianity. As my faith, I sort of cast around, and I think nowadays my faith is in writing and in art、um, as a kind of anchor to that feeling of largeness. 
Do you think what you miss is probably the the rituals and there is there's comfort right in rites and rituals but I wonder if you also miss that communal experience just that we're all we are sharing a kind of belief and energy in this moment that is bigger than we are do you miss that oh absolutely I miss that. That's such a beautiful way to put it. But I think it is possible outside of the church. It's possible in many other places. It sort of has to be worked toward um, with greater intention. So sometimes when I think about the loneliness and the isolation that we see in so many communities, I think that's what's missing. Again, it doesn't have to be we Mm. all gather in a church at 9 a.m., on Sunday morning, we are missing with this secularization. I'm curious about your thoughts on this. We're just missing those moments where we've gathered and we are shoulder to shoulder and we're combining our our energy towards something for the for the betterment of the common good. I don't think we have all that many opportunities to do that anymore. Or rather, I, I agree with you there, and I love the way that you describe that. I think rather there are opportunities, but sort of the uh, ways in which we live our lives don't encourage us to to look for them. For example, right, again, I wrote this novel during the pandemic, which was a difficult, bleak time, but also showed us really many beautiful facets of human nature, right? Mutual aid groups that came about during the pandemics, um, groups that came online to sort of like share in mourning mm. for events like the death of George Floyd or the gunning down of um, Asian American women, right? Um, these were all groups that sprang up out of these great uh, times of distress and fear where people could have plummeted into darkness, but instead chose to reach out toward one another and sort of share in that feeling of humanity. I do think it takes a little bit of stepping outside our individual rituals because, I mean, America for better or for worse, is a is a country that believes deeply in individualism and in this sort of mythology of each person alone pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. But in fact, as you said, we all actually need community and our lives are enriched by that. So when you say you lost Christianity, was it one specific thing or you felt yourself just, uh, you know, showing up on Sunday mornings and not not feeling, well, feeling kind of what we're describing, not feeling like you were part of a larger community. I think that was part of it is that we, uh, my family moved away from Kentucky. So I no longer physically had that church that I was first a part of. Um, And I think a lot of it was also just growing up a little in reading. Um, I, I, I think nowadays I do I put more faith in science than in religion and it was just a part of my growing up. I don't think there was ever like a dramatic casting away. There was never a moment in which I thought religion was like bad or destructive or harmful to myself. I just kind of grew out of it. Do you feel like you have to choose between science and religion? No, I don't think you have to choose. Like I said, today, I think I've kind of replaced that um, whole that uh, religion used to have in me with with books and with novels, because I feel like by reading, I get a I get that sense 
of humanity. I get that sense of a greater purpose. I get that sense of a thread connecting all of us. And I think that wherever people find that sense of connection is that's that's where they should go. I love that. That's how I feel about reading too. I don't know people that don't read a lot. Where do they go <laughs> for that for that thread <laughs> that you've just described? I mean, there there is there is nothing like let's say because i do these this literary series where you know maybe hundreds of people come to one place on one night in one mm. moment to hear an author i really believe in the power of that shared experience that community that we've created that night for 2 hours about big ideas you know that's what reading mm-hmm. gives to me too whether i'm doing this in a, i'm doing it in a solitary way or you know, having an experience where we're all sharing and th- where we're all in contemplation about a big idea. One of the things that I really got out of being Christian for those couple of years was my reading of the Bible. I think there's something really powerful in the Bible as just a text, mm-hmm. even if you don't sort of uh, swallow it wholesale. There's the beauty in the storytelling um, and its capacity to sort of hold the smallness and the potential bigness of human lives. And I think there is just something so powerful in any community reading the same text, whether that is a Bible or a book of literary fiction or a book of history. Mm-hmm. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with C. Pam Zhang. She's the author of the new novel, Land of Milk and Honey. And she's joining us uh, from New York. By the way, do you I know you're on book tour. Do you live in New York or do you live in California now? I live in Brooklyn these days. Ah, you with everybody else in Brooklyn. So how different is the vibe of now writing the way you write in, in a place like New York than it was immersed in, well, different kind of communities in, in California? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I suppose the real answer will have to come when I publish the first book that I've been working on in New York. But um, <laughs> I, I will see. say there, there's a yeah, there's a different energy and there's a different charge to living in New York. Um, it was I moved here right after the pandemic, and I think it was a response to that kind of isolation and that wanting to be able to reach out and just touch people. Not I'm not actually reaching out and touching people <laughs> as I pass them on the street, but the feeling that that is possible <laughs> and that every Everything is so vibrant and alive. So uh, it is, it, it's fascinating that you asked that. I think the book project I'm working on right now does feel a little bit more sprawling and capacious, maybe as a result of where I'm living. Oh, okay. Now that's, now that's interesting because I would have thought California would have inspired that capaciousness. You know, in some ways, Pam, I still think of California as the frontier, as crowded mm. as it is. There's experimentation that goes on there. It's at the very edge of the nation. Well, so is New York. Um, why the <laughs> capaciousness, why the sense of that when you're in a much more dense city? California is capacious in terms of its landscapes, certainly. Mm-hmm. New York feels more capacious in my ability to just kind of brush up against different kinds of lives. There's a sort of casual diversity here. That's really, really beautiful and powerful. Just like the number of times I walk down the street and hear people speaking in snatches of language that I don't understand. And that's my favorite thing as a writer is to 
be curious, right? To not understand something and want to investigate it further. That's that's the most fertile ground for me. Can I ask what prompted the move? Um, it was it was really just wanting to be in a city again and wanting to be around as many people as possible. It's such an interesting time to decide that. You know, most people fled cities. You went toward <laughs> the city and more people. I wonder why. You wanted you wanted that. Yeah, I just felt so disconnected from human bodies during the pandemic. Um and in many ways my book is a response to that, right? It's it's a book that is deeply embedded in the body in sort of like living in the present experiencing with the senses um and being alive to that kind of very daily very intimate joy you found now that you've mentioned the senses you found some remarkably new ways to imagine and describe the experience of the senses you know I'm always in awe of that because we're taking in so much sensual information and experience every day that it be you know we kind of get desensitized to it and then a writer comes along who can wake you up to that how do you do it <laughs> I think it it came out of writing out of a time of privation, a time of writing when I couldn't go out in the world, I couldn't eat a meal, I couldn't, you know, sort of like put my arm around a friend in a crowded bar and sort of writing into what I was missing and drawing upon those memories and that desire really helped charge what I have on the page. So for example, in the first chapter of Land of Milk and Honey, there's this scene that I absolutely loved writing where the protagonist after living in this smog-choked food desert for many years eats her first strawberry <laughs> in a long time, right? And it's just and it just kind of like hits her, right? It's not just this strawberry at this moment, but the way that strawberry kind of echoes back through time and brings up every memory of other strawberries she's eaten, the people she's eaten them with, the love she felt at the time, the eroticism, the desire. Um and I think that's that's the way in which our senses are so powerful, right? They kind of slingshot you right back to those moments in which you had um sort of comparative sensory experiences. So I'm glad you've mentioned this because we should say for our listeners that our chef has arrived at this mountaintop research facility and there is a restaurant there and that's where she will work and her first test for her employer is to concoct a dessert with a fruit strawberries that have largely disappeared from the world and so um we've asked if you will read a an excerpt from that part of the book which i love yeah so this is again soon after the chef arrives on the mountain each morning of that first week i rose smoked a contraband cigarette or four to quell my nerves opened windows to air out the smell and then adrenalized by nicotine and fear i worked to validate my continued existence i'm 5 foot 1 my voice is not loud my disposition in a group i'm told seems yielding I was no stranger to proving my worth in kitchens where I chopped faster and worked longer than men who sang out honey, sweetheart. I'd inked my arms and, once, shaved my head to deliver the warning my stature could not. My chosen career was one of trials and thankless grind. 
But never was an audition so desperate as the one I performed in that country, nor so eerie. The storeroom lay beneath a kitchen counter, the precise pink of raw chicken. Like all expensive marble, it shone as if perpetually moist. In certain lights, the counter appeared to pulse, like a lung or spleen, or, lifting open, a tongue that made way to the restaurant's belly. 156 pink steps led down. No elevator. The risk of a broken neck was, I guess, a part of the drama. Sconces lit and darkened as I passed. Each time I was seized by a fear that the steps might never end, that I descended into an underworld with no hope of return. Not for me, spring. At the bottom of the passage, behind thick steel doors, I witnessed the true wealth of that country. Others have estimated the value in those rooms of grains, of nuts, of beans, of the millions in canned foie and white asparagus, of the greenhouses under their orange lights in the vast spice grottoes. I can't quote numbers. I can only say what happened when I pressed my face to a wheel of ten-year Parmigiano, how in a burst of grass and ripe pineapple I stood in some green meadow that existed only in the resonance, like a bell's fading peal, of that aroma. I can tell you how it was to cradle wines and vinegars older than myself, their labels crying out the names of lost traditions. And I can tell you of the ferocious crack in my heart when I walked into the deep freezer to see chickens, pigs, rabbits, cows, pheasants, tunas, sturgeon, boars hung two by two. No more boars roamed the world above, no oil and geese, no sharks. The day I climbed the mountain, there vanished the wild larks. I knew, then, why the storerooms were guarded as if they held gold or nuclear armaments. They hid something rarer still, a passage back through time. The animal carcasses were left unskinned. In the circulating air, the extinct revolved on their hooks to greet me. See Pam Zhang reading from her newest novel, Land of Milk and Honey. Um, so you're... One of the things that your novel is, I think, investigating is the science and the art of taste and appetite. And I've been reading, I guess, over the last couple of years how scientists are learning how how influential genetics are in the way we individually experience taste. And I I just wonder, Mm. did you go to the – how much science were you taking in as you were conceiving the novel? So a really formative text in the creation of this book was the uh, was the sixth extinction by Elizabeth Colbert, yeah, um, which it. I actually read, yeah. yeah, maybe five years ago, and it's about the age of the Anthropocene, the one in which we live, and this mass die off of flora and fauna as a result of human intervention. Um, that was really crucial and banging around in my head. But on the whole, I wasn't reaching for the science in this novel to be super granular because the protagonist herself is not the scientist. Instead, I wanted to render that experience of what it feels like to see the leading edge of science when you don't understand it perfectly, Um, when it feels a little bit like magic to see what science can do. And I think here we're sort of heading back into that territory of like, what are the modern kinds of religion um, that people are in awe of? And I, I do think that science can kind of fill that gap as well. Yeah. But you were thinking about what taste means 
to us, right? Mm. I, I find it interesting that the way we taste has evolved. Um, the way we think about what we're willing to put into our bodies has evolved. I, I The scientist that I read some of his stuff and went back um, to look at some of what he's written when I was thinking about talking with you, um, he says the taste system is the last decision point where you decide whether you're going to take something into your body or reject it. And mm. he goes on to say that those tastes signal very different things today than they would have hundreds of thousands of years ago. I thought about that as I read the novel. People in this novel are losing the experience of what it is to taste a strawberry or a roast chicken or something that uh, yeah, evokes a million sensory experiences and memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the beginning of the novel is certainly con- concerned with that sense of loss. But I think as I as I wrote into this world, a different idea uh, presented itself to me. This idea that maybe we're losing certain crops, certain animal species, certain tastes, but we're also gaining some new and interesting ones. And they might not have been the ones that we would have chosen for ourselves, mm-hmm. um, but. They, they are ours, and this world that we're advancing into may be flawed and imperfect and not exactly what we would have picked, but it is still our world. And I think approaching food, approaching the future with that sense of openness to ambiguous spaces and what they can teach us is something really, really powerful. I think that, you know, there's been a lot of talk in um, the last couple of years about how nostalgia can be weaponized and how nostalgia can actually be dangerous if you sort of cling too tightly to some golden version of the past, right? Um, and it's something that I certainly thought about while while writing this book. How can we sort of accept the kind of future that we're looking toward and try to make the most out of it. Pam, have you read Helen McDonald's and Sin Blaché's uh, new oh novel? Oh my goodness, I'm so glad you, you <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that prophet. I actually blurbed that book. It's incredible and it is about the danger of nostalgia. It is. I had such a good conversation with them about the idea of nostalgia that it, it is a powerful force in our lives. But it can it can be overwhelming and dangerous. Yeah, if we're looking backward all the time, you're going to trip over something that's coming up in your path. It's also um, it's also something that I mean, I think of the way it infuses politics, and I think of the way that it infuses mm. sociology, and I think it gives people to use a word that you used at the beginning of the conversation. It gives a mythology that isn't really true, but that people feel very attached to, right? I mean, it's the idea of this exceptionalism in America. That is a powerful mythology that is very hard to dislodge. Yeah, certainly. Um, And when people put that kind of mythologized path on a pedestal, they're sort of saying that it has more value to them than what's actually happening in the day-to-day, right? Right. Um, It sort of removes them from the day-to-day of living, and that's really dangerous. 
Uh, I'll just say for listeners here, if you have not heard the podcast interview with Helen McDonald and Sim Blachet about profit, well, this would be a good time <laughs> to make a note, to listen to it. What what else drew you about the novel, Pam? Um, I mean, I think that as with many novels that I love, I was drawn to the propulsiveness in the prose of profit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I just always look for. And that novel certainly just carries you away from the first page. <laughs> it is thrillerish, isn't it? Like yours, yes. I think. Thank you. Uh, one of the inflection points of Land of Milk and Honey is when the chef is tasked with creating this decadent meal for her employer's potential investors. And the employer opens this special bottle of wine. And there is this beautiful passage about how food evokes memory and nostalgia, we should say, which really unlocks longing. And I just wanted to read a couple lines from this part of it. To me, that wine was fig and plum, volcanic soil, wheat fields shading to salt stone, sun, leather, well-baked, and finally most lingeringly strawberry. And then later in the paragraph, my employer decanted these deepest longings, mysterious to each diner, until it flooded the palate, a lost child's yeasty scalp, the morning breath of a lover, huckleberries, onion soup, the spice of a redwood forest gone up in smoke. I thought about how instantaneous those impressions are when we taste something, and then they're so powerful, but they're also so fleeting. (laughs) Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, if you sit down, it sounds like um, from your author's note, you had a particularly fulfilling meal with a friend in the midst of the pandemic or towards the end of the pandemic. And you began thinking about how overwhelmed someone becomes when you have this this taste experience. Am I am I connecting this right yeah, um, transportive is how I would mm-hmm. describe a, a sort of ideal taste experience. So as I think I mentioned, I started writing this book in during the pandemic, but it's not a pandemic novel in that it's about bleakness and grimness. It starts in that place, but really this book was like my portal out, mm-hmm. um, my way of sort of celebrating the joy of being in a body. And it happened because uh, of this meal that I had soon after getting vaccinated with my partner and with an old friend who was at the time a doctor working in Seattle. So you can only imagine the kind of hardship that mm-hmm. he had seen in that year. Um, and, you know, when we first sat down, we were catching up on the facts of everything had, that had transpired and things felt very hard and heavy. And then that moment when the food arrived at the table, it changed everything It changed the atmosphere of the night. Um, I saw everybody sort of not forget their troubles because they certainly still existed, but be forced to be in their bodies and be present in that moment together and share the sensorial experience. Um, And seeing that kind of joy on the faces of people I cared about really planted the seed of this novel, which is as much about, you know, dystopia and hardship and loss as it is about about the necessity of pleasure, even as the world feels like it's crumbling around us. What's the taste for you that 
you would say instantly evokes childhood and loved ones and you know experience and longing and nostalgia and everything else <laughs> um, hmm. I think that that answer will change on a daily basis, but right now I would say a, a particular kind of meatball soup that my father used to make. Really? What what's in it besides yeah. meatballs? Um, yeah, so it's a it's a Chinese meatball, so it's made with ground pork and green onion and ginger and a lot of like good aromatics. And then the soup is really simple. It's mostly just the the flavor comes from the meat itself, and then there's shiitakes and. Uh, Napa cabbage and all sorts of other tasty things. It's very simple. And so let's say you were in a restaurant and you were blindfolded so you couldn't see (laughs) what it was and somebody put this bowl of meatball soup in front of you. What, What would happen? I would be transported back into my childhood and I would think of my father making it. Um, I think I would be able to visualize every step of him making it. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? I think of that with a – my grandma used to make a a dish that, you know, in retrospect was probably not all that special. (laughs) But there is something about the instantaneous taste of that um, that rushes all, you know, all the – the weeks that I, I would spend with her every year and all the good advice she gave, you know, all of that, all of that in like one taste. It's pretty astonishing, yeah, isn't it? It It is really incredible to just, you know, the old adage of a, a picture saying a thousand words. Well, <laughs> I think that a taste can say 10,000 sometimes. <laughs> I like it. Uh, I saw that Gabrielle Hamilton's Blood, Bones and Butter was was in your listed in your acknowledgments. That's a beautiful book. Uh, how? Yes. Why was it influential for you? Um, Gabrielle Hamilton's uh, book was one of many chef memoirs that I read in the course of of creating this book because I wanted to understand sort of the emotional texture of being in that kitchen environment, which is you know, in addition to producing beautiful food, is also like really sweaty and violent and bloody um, behind the scenes and often very sexist um, and racist. There's there's a lot in sort of the culinary hierarchies that reflect larger um, cultural hierarchies and systemic inequalities that I wanted to get at. And her book really helped me see a lot of those things. You know, as somebody who's worked in restaurants, I, I did wonder about that, whether you, you'd had that experience in restaurants, because you nailed a lot of that. No, oh, thank you. Did you? Um, I myself, I myself have not cooked in a restaurant. I've had like very brief uh, sort of experiences in the service industry, but it it really was like immersing myself in these chefs' memoirs and watching a lot of Top Chef, which I adore. <laughs> no way! Um, that yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah. Why do you adore it? I adore because I mean, at the end of the day, I am a sucker for reality TV and competition <laughs> formats. Not going to lie, but I think Top Chef has been like a really fascinating prism that reflects the changing culinary conversation in our country. Right? It's been around for over twenty years now, and I think when I first began watching it, as someone who could not afford to eat Western fine dining, mm-hmm. um, it was my first entry point into understanding like 
French haut cuisine and sort of the cultural symbolism and weight and cachet that holds. But over the course of its its many seasons, Top Chef has sort of evolved a, a bit away from that, as I think the larger culinary conversation has evolved away from uh, French dining being put on an unquestioned pedestal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a little bit more understanding of not just the importance of diversity as a, a theme with a capital D, but like the tastiness of it, right? How interesting it can be um, to sort of have these experiences that come from people of other backgrounds, people of, of other cultures. This is something that you address towards the end of the book in this experience when the chef and her lover go into a town, right? And they're witnessing mm-hmm. what people are eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just foods they never could have imagined before when they're on their isolated little mountain bubble. What, don't you, I mean, what do you do with the fact that Top Chef is kind of, contri- not kind of, it has contributed to this quality of preciousness about food? Food porn comes out of that, right? Mm. <laughs> I mean, what do you do with that? That's a good question. I, I wouldn't say that I think Top Chef has contributed to that quality. I think it is just kind of reflective of what's happening. And I think the other thing about uh, food is, it is it is like capacious, right? I think there's room for food that looks like art, and I think there's also room for street food. There's also room for processed food. There's also room for food that you throw together in five minutes from whatever you make in your kitchen. Um, and I like that that entire spectrum exists. You have uh, you have this list of really delectable foods, and I have to say some surprising foods uh, at the end of the book on the. Uh, in your acknowledgments page, and I spotted chocolate pudding at KFC buffets. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what? Yeah, so it's interesting because uh, in the acknowledgments, it's not necessarily like a list of the best restaurants no. in the world, but they're restaurants that were formative to me. And I think that's actually what matters more. Did it mean something to me? Yes, then it belonged there. And um, I, I don't think I have to explain the meaning to other people. And I'm, <laughs> I'm certain that every single person has a list of foods that they probably wouldn't recommend or share, but um, had some impact on them. <laughs> okay, but I don't know what Jojo potatoes from Safeway are. So, <laughs> oh, they're just they're the Safeway name for potato wedges. I love the potato wedge. It has you like the it. perfect, yeah, it has a perfect uh, ratio of inside to outside. I like <laughs> a lot of softness. <laughs> okay, uh, going to Safeway right after the interview to get some JoJo potatoes. Um, <laughs> I, I just I just had a conversation with Lauren Groff about her new novel, and I think you mentioned somewhere that. She'd given you some really good advice, maybe early on in your writing career, about not becoming too attached to what you'd written. Does does this ring a bell? Yeah, um, I, I think so. Lauren Groff's uh, revision process, as I understand it, is incredibly inspiring. She's a big fan of just throwing things away. Um, and it's something that just really speaks to me in my own revision process. I love nothing more than cutting um, I love nothing more than feeling like I can get rid of what I have done so far because I've come up with something even better. Wow. It's very uh, thrilling. Oh, yeah. I mean, really, you don't hear. Yeah, Lauren Groff, I mean, when we were 
talking, you know, she wrote, she writes novels simultaneously, which is pretty mind blowing. And Mm -hmm. she said something like, and now I'm on the, now I'm on the third or fourth novel that could be part of the trilogy and I'm X number of pages. She was a lot of pages in and it might never go anywhere. And I'm okay with that. See, I think that's startling to people who think of writers as kind of laboring over just the right sentence and the rhythm of the language and falling in love in some ways with with it when it's right. Yeah, and that does happen too, but that happens like in draft 10 for me. I think the most important thing to get on the page first is to have something that feels alive. Um, and if it's alive, it can be fixed and it can be polished. But if you don't have that life from the beginning, then there's no point in fiddling with a sentence or with a word. There's no point in fiddling with it. Why? Because you can't, you can craft sentences after the fact. You can't replicate that, that life. If it's not alive, then there's nothing to work with. You mean if it doesn't kind of pulse with an energy on the page? Yeah, yeah. And do you know that when you, I mean, do you, do you have a sense for that in drafts one or two? Yes. <laughs> I, I think I have a sense for it now. Um, it it it's an it's an instinct, really. I don't think I could. Yeah, it's a, it's an instinct that's just always there. You always know deep down in your gut, and it's just sort of a question of whether you're brave enough to be honest with yourself. I think. What what's the where does the bravery come come from for for the honesty? I think the bravery comes from knowing that you can do better and that you can do more, right? Um, sort of to bring this back around to that idea of like looking at scarcity versus abundance. Mm-hmm. If you approach writing from a mindset of scarcity, right, where you're like, my time is limited, my imaginative resources are limited, I can't throw away these pages because what if they are the best pages I'll ever write? That becomes sort of paralyzing. But if you approach it from an abundance mindset where you kind of trust that you will write something better, that there's sort of more in yourself that you aren't even capable of seeing at the moment, then it allows you to throw things away. It allows you to keep pushing through. It allows you to sort of have that kind of courage. Wow. I I really love that. I I will quote you to some other writers (laughs) that I'm in conversation (laughs) with because that would be so... That would be so calming, right, in a, in a period of self-doubt where you feel yes, like you, yes, you've I reached, so. you've hit a cul-de-sac or something in writing and you can't see the way out. Yeah, you just have to trust that a way out will emerge in time. So have, have people told you that they think the novel has a surprisingly hopeful ending to it? which I didn't expect. Yeah, I have gotten that feedback. And I'm so glad that people picked up on that because I think it's so easy to label any dystopian novel as just automatically grim. Um, I It was really a stance of, I guess, I don't want to say optimism, but more like a, a belief in love, <laughs> as cheesy as it sounds, that sort of came to me as I, w- as I was drafting this book. Um, I do think that that capacity to wonder 
um, about our future and to not feel like everything is already foretold is one of the greatest human resources. And it's one that perhaps runs counter to the way we live our lives, doom scrolling and absorbing bad information because there's an endless amount of bad information. Um, and I think we need to remember that there is something else out there as well. So much more to talk about the next time we meet. Sipam Zhang's new novel is titled Land of Milk and Honey. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carrie.